Well, the numbers are falling and polls vary, but all indicate that most, Christ- or most Americans still consider themselves to be Christian. In 1963, 90% of all Americans claimed to be Christian. By 1990, it had slipped to 86%. Since then, the numbers have been dropping precipitously. Depending on the polls, uh, they say it has dropped to between 73 and 80%. Now, the influx of non-Christians accounts for some of this. But the number of persons who claim to have no religious affiliation has, has jumped considerably in the past few years. But still, a major survey taken in 2010 indicates that 85% of Americans believe Jesus existed, 81% believe he was the Son of God who came to earth, and died for our sins, and 78% believe he rose from the dead. Now, while there is obviously still a place for evangelism in America, it would appear that the primary task of the church in our country is not to just tell the story of Jesus. Most people know the story, and they claim to believe it. But something else is obvious, and that is not everyone who claims to believe in Jesus knows all that he's commanded, nor do they obey him. You know, according to the Great Commission, we're not only to make disciples and baptize them, but to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. So maybe we need to redefine our mission in America. Rather than seeing it as one of foundational evangelism, perhaps we ought to view our primary role in America as one of giving light to disciples, giving disciples more light. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did when he arrived in Ephesus and discovered that some basic evangelism had already taken place. But the disciples in the dark about some very important things. We're in Acts 19, verses 1 and 2. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No. We have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And no one can doubt that these disciples were in the dark. They were in major darkness. They didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. Now with Priscilla and Aquila in town teaching, that's kind of hard to imagine until you remember your geography. You see, Ephesus was a big city. It was a major metropolis. It was a center of government, commerce, culture, and religion. Population estimates vary from 200 to 500,000. And archaeologists have unearthed a theater that would seat 25,000. So it was a big, big city. And Luke notes that Paul came to town from the east. 
having passed through the upper country, not from the sea this time. So he arrived on the other side of town, far from where he had left Priscilla and Aquila. Now, it's a sure bet that Paul wouldn't walk through a major metropolis with his mouth shut. So he's no doubt preaching and and teaching along the way. And as he makes his way through town, he finds some who claim to be disciples of Jesus, who acknowledge Jesus is the Messiah. So Paul attaches himself to them, and and they begin talking. Before long, Paul notices something's not quite right. Maybe it's what they said or didn't say. Maybe they spoke of the law and the Messiah, but didn't say anything about about grace. Maybe it was their demeanor. Perhaps Paul could see there was no real joy in their life. Whatever raised the flag, Paul asked them a very pointed question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, Many Christians lack an understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit, even today. But all have certainly heard of him. So who were these disciples? And where'd they come from? Well, obviously they hadn't been taught by Priscilla and Aquila. We can only speculate, but we do know that Apollos had been in town. And we'll soon discover that these disciples held the same error that he did before Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So it's not unlikely that these were men who had heard Apollos preaching and speaking, and they believed what he said about Jesus being the Messiah. But they had no further contact with him after he learned the rest of the story. That would explain their lack of of knowledge. They were just Jews who had been told Jesus is the Messiah. When they heard Paul preaching, they said, oh yeah, we know him. We've heard of him. We're his disciples too. And Luke does refer to them as disciples. But that does not mean he's making a statement about their saving relationship to Jesus Christ. A disciple is a learner. Someone who's learning. They had learned some things about Jesus. And they may have been trying to follow his teachings that Apollos had shared with them. But they weren't Christian. Not in the full sense of the word. A Christian is one who not only follows Jesus, but who has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Now, having said that, we do need to remember that while we must judge a man's doctrine by the light of Scripture, it's not our place to judge the man. That's God's job. Only he knows the heart and what kind of a relationship someone has with him. Our job is to teach, not to stand in judgment. So when we find those who claim to be disciples, but are obviously in dark doctrinally. We don't condemn them. We don't pass judgment on them. We simply seek to take them further into the light. And that is exactly what Paul did. Verses 3 through 5. 
And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I find it very significant that when Paul discovered that they didn't know about the Holy Spirit, his next question had to do with their baptism. He didn't just say, oh, well, let me tell you about the Holy Spirit. He's, you know, the third part of the Trinity, and he didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. He knew that something was fundamentally wrong, not only with their theology, but their relationship with God. Something was missing because there's a fundamental connection between belief and reception of the Holy Spirit and baptism. And so he went to the heart of the matter and he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. That explained it. That explained it. John's baptism was not Christian baptism. It looked the same. It was immersion, but it served a different purpose. John's baptism, Paul said, was a baptism of repentance. It was a call for Jews to repent, to be ceremonially washed, to do for themselves what they did to proselytes, to converts, to Judaism. John was telling Jews they needed to get ready for the one coming after him, for Jesus. And his baptism helped them get ready. But it was not Christian baptism. Now, Christian baptism took the same form as Jewish proselyte baptism, but gave it new meaning. Christian baptism pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Obviously, John's did not represent that. Jesus had not yet died or been buried or arisen. And it serves a different purpose. It's not just a baptism to to recognize a need for change in our life. It's a means of actually clothing ourselves with Christ. Something happens in Christian baptism that goes far beyond what we are doing. It's also tied to the reception of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, Peter declared, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. With Christian baptism comes the forgiveness of sins and the gift of of the Holy Spirit, cleansing and then filling. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer at the time of his baptism. Now, Luke abbreviates this account. I don't really imagine he just said, well, what were you baptized then? And they said, John, he said, oh, that's not good enough. They said, okay, do what's right. I'm pretty sure Paul spent some time teaching them and helping them understand what it meant 
and what they were doing when they entered into the water now. And what they were symbolically sharing in and the change that it made and how the Holy Spirit came into their life. They understood things now that they hadn't known before. And when they heard all about it, they were baptized again. They'd already been baptized once. Okay? But now they're baptized again in the right way for the right reason. Now, they'd already been baptized in the right way. They'd been immersed, but not for the right reason. Now, I think their response speaks volumes about them. And their desire to be what God wanted them to be, their, their desire to, to really follow Him and to be disciples, they were willing to do whatever they understood His will to be. They were willing to obey. They didn't argue. They didn't insist that their baptism was good enough. They didn't say, well, okay, but hey, we already done that. Ours is good. No, they didn't argue. They simply did it. And Luke just says, so they got baptized. It was like it was no big deal for him because he understood what they were doing. It's a huge deal for them. But they did it. They did it. Again, I, I, I'm very, very much encouraged by that picture. And I, I would pray that that would be the response of those today who come to the understanding that perhaps they were baptized for the wrong reason. Maybe they were just baptized to join a church. They thought of it as, well, it's something i got to do to get in the church. You know, we've tried to make it very clear on the back of our bulletin for 35 years that that is not how we view baptism. It's not something you do to join the church. It's not like a secret handshake to join a club. Okay? Some people are baptized just to get in the church. Now, their intention is good, and I'm glad they want to get in the church. That's not what baptism is all about. Now, others were baptized for the right reason, but by the wrong method. They followed a traditional practice, but not a biblical one. What do we do when we come into further light about the form that baptism is to take? Do we just say, oh, well, this is the form. Okay. Now, there are a lot of people in the dark about baptism and its significance. People who need to be brought into the light concerning baptism. Now, we've got to be careful when we're talking about this. It's not our place to judge or to condemn. But we do teach. We do teach. We get into the Scriptures. We say, let's see what it says. And then we pray that those who are taught will be willing to obey when brought into the light, as were these men. Men who were not only brought into the light, but men who were then given something that really enabled them to shine. Let's, let's read on. Verses 6 and 7. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 
12 men. Now, what happened here is a bit confusing. You know, did it take Paul's laying on of hands for these 12 men to receive the Holy Spirit? At first glance, that appears to be the case. But that doesn't make sense. You know, the apostles didn't have to lay hands on those who were baptized on the day of Pentecost in order for them to receive the Holy Spirit. They were simply told that they would receive the gift of the Spirit when they were baptized. And they received the gift. Something else is a little different here. Those who were baptized on the day of Pentecost didn't begin speaking in tongues and prophesying after their baptism. Now, the apostles spoke in tongues before they baptized the people. They spoke in a dozen different languages or dialects that enabled those who had gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost to hear the mighty deeds of God in their native tongue. There's an amazing confirmation of the message that's being declared for the very first time. So the apostles spoke in tongues on the day of Pentecost, but there's no evidence at all that those who were baptized then started speaking in tongues. When we understand that, and then we see what happened here, we pick up on something. We, we find a key that I think will lead to understanding about what's taking place here. You know, at baptism, the 12 men were no doubt indwelt by the Holy Spirit, according to promise, the same way we are. There's no reason to question whether that took place for them as it did all the believers up to that point. I'm confident that when they were baptized, the Holy Spirit indwelt them. Okay? Now, they may not have felt anything, not something you feel, but it happened. God took up residence in their life. They had been cleansed, they had been washed, they had been made pure in the blood of Christ, and now God could inhabit the temple that their body now was. That took place according to promise. When they were baptized, they were born of water and the Spirit. But then Paul proceeded to do something more for them. He exercised apostolic authority and gave them special gifts from the Holy Spirit. Not the Holy Spirit itself, just some special gifts from the Spirit. Now this is the same thing we saw Peter and John do in Samaria after Philip went there, the deacon, you remember. And he baptized numerous men and women. When the apostles heard what happened in Samaria, they went to Samaria, and then they laid their hands on some of the new believers and gave to them gifts of the Holy Spirit. Gifts that Philip, not being an apostle, was unable to give them. Gifts that were needed to give direction to the church in her infancy before the scriptures were completed. You know, Philip couldn't just establish a church, give them the New Testament, and say, now follow this. They came to Christ, 
but he didn't have anything to, to leave with them. So the apostles came and gave to individuals in the church special gifts that would enable the church to know what God wanted the church to do. Those were the special gifts that were given before the scriptures were completed. And as an apostle, Paul could do what Peter and John had done. But he did for them something that is no longer done because there are no longer any apostles. These gifts were transmitted through the laying on of apostles' hands. There are no apostles to lay on hands today. So the gifts that were given through the laying on of the hands is, are no longer available. But that is not to say that there are no longer spiritually gifted individuals in the church. In fact, all believers, all believers are given spiritual gifts when the Spirit indwells them. When the Spirit comes in, He inhabits you, but He also brings in some special gift for you to use within the context of the church. Gifts of service and ministry that the Lord Himself distributes in the church, making sure that as a body of Christ, we can do all that He wants us to do. He gifts individual parts of the body with something that they should be doing in the body. Now, we have several passages of Scripture that deal with that. We have Scriptures that affirm that takes place. It's not something we should question. Now, we do sometimes wrestle with, well, what's my gift? And we get kind of caught up in some of that. I think we just start doing what's on our heart to do. We take an active role in the body of Christ. And others see us doing things and encourage us. And that lets us know that God has a job for me to do in the church. You know, there's not just a list of 18 or 21 or whatever numbers of things you, you might have. Just if God has put something on your heart and there's something that you seem to be equipped to do, do it. That's a gift that came to you when the Spirit indwelt you. So gifts are very important. Not that we give out gifts of the Holy Spirit, as did the apostles, but that as a body we encourage disciples to use the gifts the Spirit has given them. And that is a vital work of the church, encouraging one another. We gather together to encourage one another, to equip one another, to be the body of Christ, and to go out into the world and do what He's called us to do, which many times differs individually for different parts. Not all parts do the same things. But the church should be actively striving to enable and to encourage individual parts of the body to express the gifts they've been given. Our job is to get disciples to really shine, sharing and ministering as God has so equipped each individual believer. Our job today in the church may not be so much one of initial evangelism as it is finding disciples who are in the dark and then taking them further into the light and helping them 
to really shine. You know, there are a lot of good people, church people, who know about Jesus today. But not everyone who knows about Jesus really knows him. And many of them do not understand the role baptism plays in the relationship with him. Nor do they understand what he wants to do in their lives or all that he's made possible for them to do through the gifts of the Spirit. Our job as a body is to give each other more life and to give the world more life and then help believers walk with us in the light. Now, the light of the world is Jesus. But Jesus doesn't walk on the face of the earth today. He identified himself as the light of the world. But then he said to his followers, now you are the light of the world. If he has indwelt us, we need to shine. We need to let him be seen in all that we do, in all that we are. It's a great passage of Scripture. It's a bit confusing when you first read it, but I think when you understand it, it calls you to growth and maturity and involvement in the body of Christ. And it tells us what we need to be doing in the world today. Taking the masses who claim to know who Jesus is you know, it shocked me, that statistic that said the numbers that, that believed he was a son of God who died for our sins. What was it, 80-some percent? And why? But yet have they learned to allow him to take their sins upon himself? Have they, have they obeyed him in Christian baptism, allowing their sins to be washed away and then rising, filled with the Spirit to walk in the newness of life. We still have work to do, friends. Our country may be still hanging on to an identification as a Christian nation. We have got lots of people who need to understand what that means. And that's our job. Let's stand.